You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, featuring a member of the Air National Guard who served more than 20 years in uniform and flew plenty of combat missions and over 5,000 hours of airtime. That's coming up in just a moment. Just wanted to take a quick second. You know, I've had a chance over the weekend to go through some of our emails and everything. I just love getting emails from from the listeners of this show. We appreciate so much you guys taking the time out to offer us guest suggestions. Appreciate the feedback that you guys give us about the show. It's just great to interact with this Hazard Ground community. So a quick thanks to everybody uh, who takes time out uh, to say how much you love the show. Uh, if you're going to do that, please do it with an Apple review as well. Uh, go to Apple where you get your podcasts and leave us a short review. Give us a five-star rating. That'll certainly help us out in trying to grow this podcast even more and help grow this Hazard Ground community. You guys are just so amazing. We appreciate the support. But if we can actually help quantify that support through a bigger audience and and more people getting a chance to see and hear the Hazard Ground stories, we certainly appreciate your help in doing that. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, uh, where you can see all of our video versions of the podcast as well. You can get it on the Kill Cliff TV app. So download the Kill Cliff TV app. More on our good friends at Kill Cliff here in a moment. um, Follow us rather on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. You can keep up with the show, read previews of upcoming episodes, things of that nature. So it's a great way to keep up with everything going on. Hazard Ground. And don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Uh, you can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or in the sponsors tab. It redirects you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend and then we'll donate that percentage back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Speaking of great organizations, Let's talk real quick about our good friends at Killcliffe because they are a big part of why we are successful here on the show. Make sure you guys go to killcliffe.com and get your Killcliffe. Uh, right here, I have a can of the CBD, the Killer Cliff Sickle, one of their newest flavors. If you're into CBD, best way to get your clean energy and CBD is through Killcliffe Beverages, killcliffe.com. I'm a big fan of the Ignite, which is the pre-workout, the Recover, the post-workout. They're part of my workout regimen on a routine basis. These drinks are safe, effective, and absolutely tasty and phenomenal. So again, killcliffe.com to get all of your clean energy drinks. All right, on to this week's episode with a guest who spent over 20 years in the Air National Guard, retired as a senior master sergeant. He has flown combat missions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Bosnia, Kosovo, additional missions to Latin America, the Horn of Africa and the Far East. After retiring from the Air Guard in 2013, he went on to be a novelist. He has written multiple military adventure novels, including Mullah's Storm, Silent Enemy, The Renegades, The Warriors, and Sand and Fire. Uh, his one nonfiction book is about his own deployment. We'll ask him about that. The Speed of Heat, an airlift wing at war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which came out in 2008. And the newest book that is coming out here at the end of February is Red Burning Sky, and he is the author of it. Tom Young joins us here on the Hazard Ground. Tom, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Mark. It's uh, nice to get a chance to chat with you. This is quite an honor. No, absolutely. And again, over 5,000 hours um, as a flight engineer between the C-5 and the C-130. You were there for the initial uh, support of the invasion of Iraq, obviously in Afghanistan. But when when you fly to 40 different countries, uh, across the world in your time. It's it's always a, an impressive resume and, and all in the guard, correct? So, I mean, you, you spent, uh, were you full-time guard or was this like a, a just a, an M-Day deal where you got called and answered the bell? I was uh, always what, uh, what we call a guard baby. That means I enlisted initially in the Air National Guard. I was never regular Air Force, but uh, between training and deployments and so forth, I spent a good period of time on active duty orders but it was always as an active member, uh, an activated member of the Air National Guard. Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, uh, the term weekend warrior, we still joke around without it, but it's not really a thing anymore, right? Uh, for those of us who have been in the Guard for any considerable length of time, I always joke around, one weekend a month, my ass, 
You know, like it's just it's not that anymore. You know, we're, there's always and now with COVID, there's always reasons that people are being called up uh, to active duty and things of that nature. So uh, as we've seen, hell, we're driving buses now and teaching in schools. I mean, who, where, where the hell did this call come from? But obviously a different discussion for a different day. So when you enlisted in the Air Guard, uh, what year was it and why did you enlist? I enlisted in 1992 and uh, I've had this strange dual career in aviation and in writing. And those two interests go back to when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up uh, on a farm in North Carolina, uh, listening to my grandfather's stories from World War II. He was a B-17 mechanic in the legendary 8th Air Force. And I seriously considered uh, an active duty Air Force career. Uh, But at the same time, I was very interested in writing and journalism And in my youthful ignorance, I thought I had to choose one or the other and never look back. So uh, at least initially, I chose I chose to study uh, journalism and I pursued that pretty single mindedly for a while. Uh, I spent 10 years with the broadcast division of the Associated Press, but I never lost my interest in flying. Uh, I got my civilian private pilots license and started going up through the ratings. And then uh, back when the first Gulf War kicked off, when uh, at the AP, we were covering uh, Desert Shield, which became Desert Storm. We did a lot of uh, feature stories, human interest stories in uh, people who were getting uh, activated and deployed. And, and I thought those people were very interesting because they had their civilian careers and their civilian lives. And yet they also had these military careers. Uh, I, I uh, followed a lot of those stories. And one of them struck me in particular. It was a guy who was a television reporter in Louisiana, and he was also a pilot in either the Air Force Reserve or the Air National Guard. And I thought, well, heck, if he can do that, I can do that too. So I decided to enlist in the uh, Air Guard, and I became a uh, flight engineer on C-130s. And uh, there for a while, I was working in the news business and and flying in the Air National Guard and got pulled more and more into aviation and uh, volunteered for some active duty time. And, and then along comes 9-11, uh, of course. And and then there were all the activations and deployments after that. And uh, uh, I had always, always been interested in creative writing as well. I'd always been interested in fiction writing, but I never had a good idea for a novel that I could really sink my teeth into until we got activated and started flying into uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq. And that gave me plenty of material. And uh, that's what started the uh, the fiction writing. So your time as a pilot prior to 9-11, um, was it as fulfilling as you thought it would be? Uh, if you're referring to my military time yes. prior to 9-11, right. uh, I, was, I was flying as a flight engineer. So I did have civilian pilot's licenses, but I was a flight engineer on the C-130. And actually, yes, it was fulfilling. Um, even in the calmest peacetime, airlift units in the air guard and the reserve and in the active duty have plenty to do because there's always uh, some need for airlift for various operations all over the world. Uh, Every embassy we have in the world needs uh, resupplying. Uh, The U S military is always doing joint training exercises with other countries and they they need airlift support. Uh, You might find yourself doing something as offbeat as uh, dropping Chilean paratroopers in in a joint exercise. So uh, the pre 9-11 stuff was, was fulfilling. It was fascinating. And because pretty much every branch of the military needs airlift support, it it was like taking a survey course in everything the U S military did. Uh, And it was just fascinating. To that end, after 9-11 happens, was there part of you is like, Whoa, wait a minute, you know, this really wasn't what I thought I was getting into kind of deal. Like, Hey, I I enjoy doing the airlift stuff, but I wasn't really ready to get shot down out of the sky. (laughs) I knew it could happen. I knew that we could get involved in a hot conflict. And uh, I I realized it was what I'd signed up for. I have to give a lot of credit to my uh, recruiter. When I first joined the Maryland air national guard, he didn't give me any BS at all. He said flatly, if they blow the whistle and run up the flag, you're going. He did. He did not lie. So uh, he, he set my expectations right from the beginning. Well, congratulations. You got the only honest recruiter that anybody has ever met uh, signing <laughs> up for the military. So uh, kudos, kudos to you. Uh, I kid. I kid to all the recruiters out there listening and watching. My wife used to be a recruiter. So 
Uh, I can't I can't say too many bad things about him. But that said, so 9-11 happens. Um, how quickly does the flag go up for you personally? On a personal level, the flag went up immediately. Uh, I on on 9-11 on that day. I was scheduled to fly a routine peacetime training mission with my unit. So I'm driving from my home in uh, Northern Virginia up to Martinsburg, West Virginia. I'm I'm listening in horror to the news on the radio. And by the time I got to our base, uh, the base had gone to ThreatCon Delta. All the flying was canceled and uh, everybody was, was watching the television and uh, following the news, and we knew we were going to be getting involved pretty quickly. So we actually started getting ready that very day. Uh, at that time, our unit had 12 C-130s, and uh, I think most of them, maybe nine or ten of them, were on the ramp uh, that day. And our maintenance guys swung into action, fueling the aircraft, doing the maintenance pre-flights, doing everything they could to get the aircraft locked and cocked. And then they would turn them over to us at operations and we would go do our uh, uh, flight crew pre-flights. And by the end of the day, every airplane we had was ready to go. Uh, it was it was a while before we actually started getting called up. But prior to uh, prior to, prior to the you know situations where the whole unit got uh, activated, there were uh, people from various sections who were volunteering a uh, great deal of volunteerism uh, in in our unit. I think um, of all the deployments that I did, uh, only one was a uh, a mandatory call up, and at that time I would have volunteered anyway. Okay, so uh, when do you actually deploy for the first time? The first time I uh, deployed after nine eleven was actually in two thousand and two. And we uh, deployed to uh, an airbase in uh, Doha, Qatar, uh, and we were flying in and out of Afghanistan during that time. Uh, There were other people from my unit who volunteered for uh, deployments earlier than that. Uh, So in 2002 was was my first uh, deployment of any length uh, post 9-11. Tom, Uh, were you you the type of person who was itching to get into the fight or you were just sort of waiting for it to be your turn? Uh, I was chomping at the bit. I, um, I I wanted to go and I had a very good uh, situation then with my civilian employer. Uh, I was flying for uh, a regional airline at the time called Atlantic Coast Airlines. And uh, it happened that uh, my uh, my commander was also the uh, assistant chief pilot at the airline. So I had no problem getting military leave whenever I wanted to volunteer right. <laughs> uh, for uh, uh, for a mission. So now prior to prior to that deployment in uh, 02, there were shorter trips that uh, you could volunteer for that uh, s- supported the war effort in various ways, uh, you know, in. In addition to the long deployments, you know, from, you know, a month to six months to a year, uh, there were always um, short haul missions taking stuff around the U.S. or overseas. Uh, you, you know, they might cut active duty orders for you for a week to do an airlift mission. And, and there was a lot of that going on. And I volunteered for a lot of that as well. Uh, just to kind of go back, and I failed to mention this at the outset, currently you're working as an airline pilot uh, in the D.C. area. And were you an actual airline pilot back then when 9-11 happened, like a civilian airline pilot? I was. Okay, I, so- I was a first officer for Atlantic Coast Airlines. That company is not around anymore. Right, right. And uh, when when they went out of business, I had a 10-year break in civilian flying, but I was still flying as a flight engineer in the Guard. And uh, back in 2015, uh, I decided I, I, missed, I missed the flying. So I, I got another airline job and that's my day job now. Right. The only, well, I wanted to ask that. I wanted to bring that up just because, you know, I, I couldn't imagine being a civilian airline pilot and wondering how, what you must've been thinking and feeling about how everything had went down. And then you hear after the fact about how the cockpit got taken over. I mean, did you have sort of a, like a visceral reaction to hearing all that and, and wonder, you know, how it could have all went down and how easily it might've been, could have been you at some point. It was a scary time. Uh, and it was a very strange time. Uh, and I remember th- thinking, 
you know, I used to think security was somebody else's job and flight safety was my only job. And then we realized security was everybody's job. And uh, of course, a lot of procedures changed then. Uh, cockpit doors got hardened and they got uh, more secure locks. Um, a, a lot of procedures changed and uh, it was definitely a sea change in the way we did things. And it was also eerie when we got back to flying just a few days uh, after 9-11, if memory serves, 9-11 was on a Tuesday, civilian flying resumed the following Thursday. And I flew that Thursday night and it was a flight from uh, Dulles near Washington, D.C. to Roanoke, Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. And there was nobody on the airplane but crew because passengers didn't want to fly, understandably. And probably the next three or four or five flights I did were the same way. Nobody but crew. It was just to position the airplane. And um, and there were so few flights at that time you could go several minutes and not hear anything on the radio and you'd hear pilots talking to controllers, just saying radio check, just, just to make sure we still had radio contact. (laughs) And there was so little traffic. Sometimes you would, you would take off for a destination that might be 400 miles away and uh, air traffic controllers would clear you direct to the destination, which is pretty unusual. It was a weird time to be flying. Wow. Uh, Just an incredible perspective. I, I, I never actually talked to a civilian pilot about it. Um, you know, and what it must have been like and what it must have felt like after that. So anyway, uh, but to bring us back to, uh, you know, you, after your first deployment, now you end up becoming part of uh, the supporting force for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, correct? That's correct. Um, my unit uh, deployed in March of 2003 uh, in, the, in the run-up to Operation Iraqi Freedom. We deployed to Masira Island, Oman, and that was a centrally located uh spot from which we could support operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, and also to a certain extent in the Horn of Africa. When you get this mission, what are you, what are you thinking? Like, what's your feeling? Um, do you, and what exactly are you told about what you're going to be doing? Obviously, it's airlift stuff, because again, for those who don't know, the C-5 and the C-130 transport aircrafts, you know, they, they, they can carry tanks. The C-5 can, 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 you know, bring a tank over there. But, uh, you know, so obviously it's not one of those things where you're like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for bad guys on the ground, but still, you know, you're going into what's going to be a hostile area. Uh, yes, we knew we were getting into a uh, serious combat airlift. And there were times when uh, our aircraft got shot at. Uh, uh, fortunately, I don't think any any of them were ever were ever hit. But uh, we knew we were going into harm's way. But uh Pretty much the consensus was this is what we signed up for. This is what we've trained for. And uh, now it's time to uh, to go play the game for real. Uh, we had a very good commander in those days. Our, uh, our commander was a gentleman named Colonel Jesse Thomas, and he made sure his unit was ready. His, his standard was uh, every crew member is going to be qualified to do everything the airplane is qualified to do. Uh, you're going to be proficient and qualified period, end of story. And, and we were, uh, and his, his unit was ready. And, uh, when the time came to go do it for real, uh, I think we were as prepared as we could have been. Do you, uh, do you have any reservations, uh, you know, about what you're about to get into? Is there part of you that's scared, nervous, or, uh, you know, you mentioned before you wanted to get into the fight. Are you excited? Like, what's the feeling? Uh, all of the above, and I think uh, my biggest fear, and and this is not unique to me, I think this was true of most people, your biggest fear is uh, is not of getting hurt, but of screwing up. The worst thing you fear is letting your buddies down. Uh, you know, I think of the, the joke, although it's not really a joke, it's, it's for real, the, the old World War II pilot's prayer, dear Lord, please don't let me screw up, but if I do, don't let me screw up and live. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, you just you, you just prayed you would do what you were trained to do and know what you were supposed to know and, and hold up your end of what had to be done. I can't imagine. Um, are you at a point where you can watch things unfold on the ground as you're doing airlift or or no, you're just sort of moving under the cloak of darkness from point A to point B? A lot of it was under the cloak of darkness. Um, we were 
you know, so focused on flying the airplane, getting the airplane from point A to point B, um, that that took up 98% of your bandwidth. But you could you you could get a feel for what was going on um, at night. You know, you would see tracers, you would see firefights on the ground, you you would see uh, uh, any aircraft art- artillery, and sometimes shoulder fired uh, man pads coming up at you. I mean, you you knew there was a war going on. Um, you know, you would uh, land at a forward location and uh, offload cargo and. You'd, you'd get out of there as quick as you could, but uh, it, it gave you an idea of what other branches of the military were up against. You'd land in a very austere location to resupply uh, Marines or, or soldiers with the Army, and uh, you would get uh, at, at least a hint of the conditions they were operating under. So uh, it flying airlift and supporting other branches of the service you know, I did give you a pretty good idea of what was going on overall. Any of those landings or, or locations stick out to you that that's in your memory more than others? Uh, well, I can remember doing uh, tactic, tactical approaches into Baghdad International at night, you know, doing the, the spiral down that we would do. Yeah. Hey, I remember that. When, when I flew in in 05, boy, um, you want to talk about nausea? Uh, if you're, if you've ever been on that Gravitron ride <laughs> at the, uh, <laughs> yeah. at the, uh, at the, at the carnival, the amusement park, I mean, we were getting shot at and they corkscrewed as you know, you could hear the rounds, you know, flying past. And, you know, if you were in a window seat, you might see some traces, but you can hear them, you know, whizzing by from the ground. I was green when they picked me up off the floor. Like I was just beyond ready to vomit into my Kevlar. That's what we called a, uh, a random steep approach, you know, chop the power and roll into a 60 degree bank and spiral down. And uh, we yeah, whatever you just said made me vomit. Those. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what it means, but it, I, all I know is, is that it's not a comfortable landing. Yeah, those were memorable. And uh, I, we, I can remember doing some uh, landings on very short dirt strips in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Uh, it, it was it was sure enough the car, the combat airlift that we trained for. Do you feel like, you know, those situations, um, as much as they tested you, you know, uh, when, when you go through them, did they seem routine? Strange as it may sound, it did seem routine because we had trained so hard. We had flown on night vision goggles, you know, back home, over the hills of West Virginia uh, so often that wearing the NVGs and and focusing them and so forth became second nature. Uh, We had done, you know, the random steep approaches and the assault landings to the point where that had become second nature. And, uh, you know, a moment ago, ago, I gave a shout out to our old commander, uh, Colonel Thomas. He said something very interesting about why he was so demanding about making sure people were proficient. He said, when you get into a combat situation, you're going to have enough stress on you just being in that combat situation. You don't need the additional stress of not being familiar with things like your night vision goggles. You don't need the additional stress of not being confident uh, doing a random steep approach or a short field landing. If, if I can make you as proficient as possible on all of those things, that lowers the stress that you're going to be under when you actually get into a combat situation. And that was the truth. He did us a great favor by setting the bar so high. When you, uh, when you train for this stuff at the time, do you ever think like, you know, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep doing this? And then finally when it happens, you're like, Oh, now I understand. Well, I, I, I never, I never found myself thinking, why do we keep doing this? Because when I joined, I had the model of uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Sure. And that was before my time. But I, I had seen that by helping cover it in the news business. And, and it, so I had already seen how somebody in the Guard or Reserve can get called up and sent into harm's way. Uh, so, so it was no surprise when it happened to me, you know, I'd, I'd seen it happen to all these people in, in desert storm. And as we discussed a minute ago, my recruiter made it very clear it could happen to me. So, uh, it was exactly what I expected. Do you, uh, have any sort of mechanical malfunctions at any flight while, while you're, uh, doing all this? I mean, you know, you talk about the added stress being shot at is one thing, but, uh, having something break on the plane while you're in air is probably a whole different level of stress. Uh, that's 
that just goes with the territory. That's just part of the job. Um, I remember one uh, one afternoon we were flying into Balad Air Base mm-hmm. in Iraq, and we were on short final approach, and the uh, engine oil quantity for uh, I think the number three engine just dropped to zero. And of course, my first thought is we took fire. Something hit that engine and hit the oil reservoir, and and uh, we had no uh, no more oil. But the engine was running fine, so we kept it running uh, until we landed. And uh, I believe we shut it down immediately once we got on the ground. And uh, you know, of course, an engine problem was the last thing we needed because we wanted to get in and out of Balad as quick as we could. So we shut down the airplane. And uh, I, uh, I put a ladder up to that engine and I couldn't find any sign of any battle damage. I opened a cowl and couldn't see any problem. And uh, to make a long story short, scanned a circuit breaker. A darn circuit breaker had popped. No, it wasn't a breaker. A fuse had blown and it had picked that moment to blow to make it look like we had an engine problem uh, of all places on short final to Balad. So that was that's just one example. Uh, I can think of uh, I can think of others uh, when we transitioned from the C-130 to the C-5. C-5 is a great piece of engineering, but uh, because the aircraft is old uh, and has miles and miles of hydraulic tubing, it'll it'll throw hydraulic leaks at you. Uh, uh, So we had those kinds of issues. It's, um, you know, emergencies and flying. That's just part of the job. Yeah, I can't get over that as a passenger. (laughs) Uh, Never going to make me feel comfortable, no matter how much you sound cool, calm and collected about it. It's never going to make me feel comfortable that, yeah, hey, the things breaking on the plane in midair is is part of the job. Um, Yeah, uh, we're not going to agree on that, although I'll take your word for it. Um, (laughs) That said, was there ever a scenario where you got nervous when something had gone wrong or it was something like, whoa, I'm not exactly sure what this is yet? Probably the most frightening scenario uh, was when I got nervous in retrospect. Uh, in the moment, I didn't have time to get nervous because things happened so fast. But one night early during Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, we were taken off from uh, Baghdad International. And very soon after we took off, right about the time we were bringing the landing gear up, bad guys on the ground uh, launched on us with uh, a shoulder-fired heat seeker. And... I'll just describe it the way we perceived it in the cockpit. Um, There was a flash and the cockpit lit up like the sun. And that was our defensive flares going out. Uh, At the same time, there's this gosh awful uh, warning tone that goes off. And that's the missile warning tone from our defensive system uh, detecting the launch and automatically launching the defensive flares. The idea with flares is they're hotter than your engines. So you're hoping the missile will bite off on a flare and not, and not chase one of your engines. And our pilot, who was a a terrific uh, pilot when it came to uh, tactical maneuvers and so forth, uh, immediately rolls the airplane uh, into a bank. And, uh, and for a second, maybe I was thinking, you know, Oh oh my gosh, we're going to get shot down. And then I realized I didn't feel an impact and the airplane was still flying and boom, just like that, it was over uh, just in a matter of seconds. And then we, uh, you know, followed our procedures and, and did our thing. And then once we were out of the threat area, you know, we get wings level and cruising back to base. And uh, it was so quiet on the airplane. Um, people just wouldn't say a word to the point where every now and then the aircraft commander would kind of pull us and say, hey, guys, are you okay? And everybody would check in, you know, co-pilot's okay, navigator's okay, engineer's okay. And I think it's because everybody was thinking about what could have happened. But that was a quiet flight going back to base. Uh, you know, we nobody said much except running checklists. And I, as I say, I think it was because people were reflecting on what could have happened. Um, so if, you know, to, to the extent that that scared us, it, it scared us after the fact when we look back on it. But while it was happening, you're just too busy to get scared. Difference between Iraq and Afghanistan is pretty substantial, uh, at least, you know, from a ground combat perspective, just because of the environment and everything else. Uh, what's it like from a, from the standpoint of flying uh, and landing? I mean, I know we had some air bases, obviously, in Afghanistan, but you mentioned some of these sort of 
you know, runways and dirt roads or whatever it is you had to land on. Probably more of those are in Afghanistan than necessarily Iraq, or am I missing that? From what I saw, and it's entirely possible another another C-130 crew member uh, or a C-5 crew member might tell you different, but just in terms of combat airlift, uh, there wasn't a lot of difference. It was uh, a lot of the same kind of thing. You know, one day you might land on a long runway like at Bagram or Baghdad International, and the next day you might land on a dirt strip somewhere. Uh, one day you're flying in in the daytime, and the next time it's the middle of the night and you're on night vision goggles. So... From from our perspective as airlifters, there was actually not a whole lot of difference between Iraq and Afghanistan operations. Did you ever do any sort of air resupply, like as far as drops are concerned? I never did a combat airdrop. We trained and trained for those. And uh, I did a lot of personnel drops in exercises. I personally never did uh, a combat airdrop, but uh, a, a number of our people did, and they became more common in Afghanistan after my unit transitioned from the C-130 to the C-5. Uh, that was in 2005, 2006. And from my conversations with C-130 crew members who were still in, in the C-130 airframe from, the, say, the 2006 timeframe on, airdrops became a lot more common. But just because of the timing, that's not something I ever did. The only reason I ask is just because, uh, you know, we've talked to so many people who have been to Afghanistan and some of the bases and places that they put them, you've got to be thinking, like, who the hell would want to put a base here or why the hell would a base be here? And I was just curious if you're flying over some of these places in the mountains and the valleys looking down and going, look at those poor bastards down there. Who the hell would think that's a good idea to put those guys there? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I found myself thinking that many, many times. <laughs> and uh and so often we would uh, resupply an army unit or a Marine Corps unit somewhere, and uh, we would see the conditions they were dealing with. And and then we'd f- fly back to uh, our base, which, you know, by Air, Air Force standards might be a, uh, an austere base. We were living in a tent, but the tent was air conditioned. We had hot chow in the chow hall. And uh, you really came to appreciate what other branches of the service had to deal with. Uh, and the, the the discomforts they would, were dealing with sometimes. I, I gained a lot of re, – not, well, not that I didn't have a lot of respect to begin with, but I gained even more respect for soldiers and Marines. You know, you start uh, doing multiple deployments here back and forth. Was there a time where you started to think like, hey, I've done enough at this point? You know, I mean, I've I've, I've had enough flight hours and everything else. Maybe it's time to do something else? I I never really got to that point. Um, when I got to 20 years, uh, I realized it was time to retire because of uh, things going on with the civilian job, things going on with the writing career. But it was a painful decision. It's not like I was eager to get out. Uh, and I think that's true of, of most of the people I know in, in my unit. You know, you in in the Guard and Reserve, you spend many years with the same people, um, unlike in the active duty where assignments change, bases change. Uh, you, you, can, you, you can work with the same people for 20, 30 years in the Guard, and pulling that plug and not flying with them anymore is, is a tough decision to make. I'm still in touch with uh, a lot of those guys and gals. Uh, we get together fairly often, but uh, I... I've, I've seen some crusty old guys tear up in their retirement ceremonies because they, they just don't want to leave. But that time comes for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I've said it many times. At some point, you're going to be told you can't put the uniform on anymore. And some people it happens for three or four years. Some people it happens after 30 years. So uh, but you're right. all going to eventually be told, hey, you can't put this uniform on anymore at some point. So uh, enjoy it while you can. All right. So now. While you're going back and forth between active duty and your civilian job and everything else, obviously there's some writing going on in between, right? You don't wait till post-career to start writing all your novels, do you? That's true. I began uh, writing my first novel. <laughs> I began writing my first novel when I was stuck at Osan Air Base in South Korea uh, with a broke broken down C5. Uh, this novel uh, idea had been bouncing around in my head for a while. 
And uh, we we got stuck in Osan uh, with an airplane on maintenance. And um, so I, for a change, I had time on my hands. So I went to the BX and I got a yellow legal pad and a cup of coffee. And I sat down on a couch in uh, aircrew building and I wrote at the top of that legal pad, chapter one. And that became eventually my first novel, The Mullah's Storm. I had no idea that that was going to lead to anything else. I was thinking of it as a uh, standalone uh, one-off uh, war novel. It turned into a series of six books and kind of led led me to a new career. And then that writing uh, eventually led me to historical novels. And uh, after after my six novels set in present-day conflicts, I turned to uh, World War II fiction wrote a World War II novel called Silver Wings, Iron Cross. And, uh, and, and this latest book that's just out now is another World War II novel titled Red Burning Sky. And it's inspired by a real world event. Red Burning Sky uh, is inspired by something called Operation Halyard, H-A-L-Y-A-R-D. And that was the rescue of more than 500 downed allied flyers, mainly American flyers, in Yugoslavia in 1944. And that was an airlift operation uh, using C-47s, which is the military version of the DC-3. And and that being an airlift operation, it it certainly interested me uh, as an old airlifter. And that's what appealed to me as a writer. All right. I want to focus on uh, some of the nonfiction stuff you did um, first before we get back to, you know, the fiction stuff and the creative stuff, because you your one nonfiction book, as I mentioned at the top, The Speed of Heat, An Airlift Wing at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, also, you had a narrative called Night Flight to Baghdad, which appeared in the anthology Operation Homecoming, Iraq, Afghanistan and the home front in the words of U.S. troops and their families. Um, let's start with the first one, The Speed of Heat. You know, after you'd written these non these fiction novels, all of a sudden you make this pivot to tell your personal story. Why? Well, actually, the speed of heat and uh, that essay, "Night Fight to Baghdad," came before my. Uh, oh, really? My okay. And the the genesis for the idea of uh, the speed of heat, the oral history of my unit's missions, happened in say. Late 2003, 2004, uh, various people in my unit were coming back from their deployments and they get back to base at Martinsburg and uh, they'd be telling these great stories. And that kicked in my, my old reporter's instinct. I thought these, these guys and gals have all these great stories and they're going to be lost if nobody writes them down. So I, I, I dusted off the old reporter's skills, and uh, with my commander's blessing, I interviewed about 70 of my squadron mates, not just flyers, but other, other people as well, uh, maintenance personnel, uh, flight medics, flight nurses, um, aerial port personnel, pretty much uh, from all the sections on the base. And I just let them tell their stories of what they had seen and done on their deployments in their own words. And I transcribed the interviews uh, edited them for for brevity and uh, put them sort of in a chronological order. The, the book begins with people's uh, stories of uh, where they were and what they were doing on 9 eleven because that was kind of the beginning of our story of of these activations. And uh, the book was uh, a labor of love. Um, you know, to, to speak in commercial terms, it was it was not a money maker, but it was a, a labor of love. And I was. Uh, able to, to set down these stories of, of what these folks had done. And, and it was an honor to, uh, to be allowed to do that. Well, we, we have that in common because that's exactly what kind of the genesis of the hazard ground has always been just to tell the stories uh, of people who didn't get the pleasure of having their, their story made into a book or a movie. You know, uh, it was just a, a, a genuine idea that there are so many stories out there that people have and they should be heard and we, we want to tell them. And so, um, you know, never thinking that we would end up being, you know, a, a way to, uh, you know, be a chronology of history um, on this podcast. But that's kind of what it is, right? It's everybody's personal story about their time in combat from every major conflict that we've done here from World War II all the way to present day. So I certainly appreciate the the desire and want to just to tell those stories because, again, um, they will be lost. You know, we're, they, whether it's a written history or an oral history, it's so important that we, we, we catalog history 
uh, for for everybody of the next generation to see, hear, and understand. Exactly, and uh, it's uh, it's a, a great service that you're doing with this uh, podcast. So my hats off to you. Um, when you end up writing that book, was there anything about you know those stories that you heard that really just stuck out to you? Was it one of those things, just like wow, I just I, I never even thought of that, or I, I I didn't expect to hear that kind of thing. <laughs> There was not anything that was a big surprise to me because I had lived it with these folks before right. we started talking about it in the interviews. But what so many civilian readers of the book told me is they had no idea that there was this particular job in the military or that particular job in the military. I had no idea that mechanics deployed with you and that, and that they worked so hard Um you know, people people think of uh, the Air Force and the Air National Guard, and they think of air crews flying aircraft. But uh, a lot of times, civilians are not aware of all the support that entails, and all of the uh, the dedicated, skillful work it takes to keep those aircraft flying. And I had a lot of readers tell me that for them, that was a surprise to to see. Um, all it took to, uh, to, to support our operations. When you wrote the narrative night flight to Baghdad, um, what was the intent for that? Um, and was it always supposed to appear in operation homecoming? Well, I, I was lucky. I was one of, uh, I think 70 or so, uh, military writers whose, uh, whose submissions to this anthology, Operating, Operation Homecoming, I was one of, the, one of the ones who were published. And they had, uh, it's been a while now, but if memory serves, they had maybe a thousand entries. And uh, it, was, it was a great project. It was uh, a joint effort between the Department of Defense and the National Endowment for the Arts. And DOD and NEA are two acronyms you don't usually see in the same sentence. But... Um, the, the idea was to have service members write about their experiences in any form, uh, short story, uh, fiction, nonfiction, uh, even poetry. So I wrote an account of that night we got shot out, shot at, taken off out of Baghdad that I described uh, earlier and uh, described the sights and, and, and the feelings and, and everyone's reaction and uh, wrote it up as best I could and, and submitted it and was very pleasantly surprised when uh, it was chosen for publication. And uh, that was also part of what spurred me to do more writing about military experiences. When you found out it was going to get published, what was your reaction? I was delighted. Uh, I, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, as much as I enjoyed working in journalism, you know, I, I, uh, seen stuff I'd written go out on the wire. I'd heard myself on, on the radio, but uh, I'd always wanted to have my work in a hardcover book that I could go into a bookstore and pick up. And <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story on myself. The day that book was supposed to come out, uh, I went to a bookstore near my home and uh, looked for it on the shelf, was delighted to find it, to be able to pick it up there. And uh, any writer will tell you it's it's a great feeling to to walk into a bookstore and and see your work on the shelf there for the public. So when you wrote these two nonfiction pieces, I mean, I know you had obviously a journalistic experience and everything else, but did some of that when the fact that they actually, you know, you made a book and, and your, your work was chosen to be published, does that sort of stoke a fire to start doing fiction novels? Or I know you'd mentioned earlier, you always wanted to tap into that creative side, but um you know, you, you change from the nonfiction angle to the fiction. So give me how kind of that unfolds. Well, I'd always had an interest in writing fiction. Uh, I think I'd wanted to write fiction uh, ever since I was uh, old enough to read it. And the, the, the nonfiction was sort of um, was sort of a credential. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competition out there with uh, with fiction. It's it. It's tough in the beginning to get a literary agent. It's tough in the beginning uh, to get an editor with any of the major publishing houses to pick you up. But if you if you have a credential like uh, you've you've published anything before, nonfiction in journalism or, or whatever, 
that um, is sort of a feather in your cap. It helps uh, agents and editors uh, take you a little more seriously. Also, nowadays, it's important to have what they call a platform. And that is a background and an experience in, uh, in what you're writing about. So if you write a military thriller, it really helps if you've been in the military. Now, there are civilians who are perfectly capable of writing really, really good military thrillers. Think of Tom Clancy. But um, in, in the modern day publishing environment, uh, platform is a big issue. Uh, they, they, they really like for people who write military books to have military uh, experiences. Um, and again, that's not to discount the people who don't. I mean, one of the greatest war novels of all time, The Red Badge of Courage, was written by someone who had never been in the military. Yeah. But um, but it, it just in terms of the business, in terms of getting that contract and getting your book out there, it certainly helps if you have real world experience. Do you know what you want to write your first nonfiction story about? Or, or I know you had said, mentioned you sat down uh, with a pad and paper and a cup of coffee, but... Um, had you been stewing on it for a while, or is this one of those things where you just sort of were jotting down ideas? Uh, my, for my first novel, the idea had been rolling around in the back of my head for a long time. And, I, and I'll give you the genesis of it. Uh, when we were flying in and out of Afghanistan, of course, we were flying over some very rugged terrain. And, you know, we'd be flying over that and talking about it on interview on, on interphone going, you know, wow, you know, look at those hills down there. This would be a bad place to go down. Uh, so my my writers imagine my writer's imagination kind of ran away with that. And I thought, all right, well, what if you did go down in a remote area in Afghanistan? And oh, to make matters worse, what if you went down in the middle of a blizzard and to make matters still worse, still worse? What if you were transporting a high-value Taliban detainee who survived the crash and you survived the crash, and now you're responsible for uh, keeping custody of this guy while you're trying to evade capture in a hostile area? And that uh, <laughs> that example of my imagination running away with me became the plot for my first novel, The Mullah's Storm. So... When you finish that novel, do you feel like it's going to be a success? Uh, <laughs> I had an idea that it might be because I had workshopped chapters from that novel uh, at writers conferences and I got a very, very positive response. Uh, in fact, um, in 2008, when I attended the Sewanee Writers Conference at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, I think I had about a quarter of that novel written. I, uh, I workshopped it there, and one of the creative writing uh, instructors there came to me, and uh, this really did my heart a lot of good. She said, you need to go home and finish this like a house of fire. You need to finish this book. So I did, and uh, sure enough, uh, I was lucky enough to get a literary agent and, uh, and a publisher. And still at that point, I was thinking it was going to be just one novel, and I thought I was very lucky to get one book published. And I was because there's so many deserving writers out there who don't ever get published. But then my agent calls me up on the phone and he, and he tells me he's got a contract to publish this, uh, this novel. And he said, it's a two book contract and they want a sequel. Uh, and, and I'm thinking to myself as he's given me this wonderful news on the phone. Wow. That's great. Wait a minute, a sequel. Uh Oh, what am I going to do for a sequel? But I, uh, I put the thinking cap on and uh, came up with a plot for uh, uh, another idea. And uh, oh, and if there's a funny story with that, too. Uh, at the time, I was so new to the business. I did not know that the business model uh, generally called for thriller writers to do at least one book a year. And uh, they asked me. They, the publisher, asked me, uh, how long did I think it would take me to write another novel? And I said, well, it took two years to write The Mullah's Storm, so let's say two years to write another one. Mm -hmm. And there was this pause on the phone, and then they said, um, okay, uh, if you want two years, we'll give you a deadline two years from now. But if you can finish it in one year, we would look upon that highly favorably. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but even I can take a hint when it's that obvious. 
So I got my butt in gear and finished it in a year and did um, a, a total of six novels in that series. Wow. Uh, is there one that you're more proud of than another? Or are these like your children? You, you love them all equally. <laughs> um, my wife, who is also my, my primary editor, mm-hmm. will disagree with me about this, but I think my favorites are the two World War II novels. Now, many writers will tell you that their favorite or their best is whatever their most recent book was. And maybe that that's what's going on with me. But uh, I, as I mentioned, grew up hearing my grandfather's stories from uh, World War II. I've always been fascinated in that. Part of the motivation to write those historical novels was to honor him. So if if I had to pick a favorite, it would be uh, either one of uh, the two World War II novels. And uh, those titles are Red Burning Sky, which is the most recent one. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Silver Wings, Iron Cross. More of a relief slash pride feeling. Uh, landing an aircraft into a very tough environment or opening the box and seeing that finished book with the cover and the shiny, you know, glossy picture right there in front of you. Uh, it, those two situations are, are somewhat similar, but they're not identical. Uh, when you, uh, land an aircraft, uh, in bad weather and you've flown an instrument approach down to minimums and, and you get on the ground, there's a feeling of release, relief and release. Uh, and you find yourself thinking, thank goodness I, I didn't screw this up. I'm <laughs> glad to be on the ground. Uh, with, uh, you know, opening that box of copies of books from your publisher and, and seeing it in print, that's, uh, that, that's more of a, a joyful moment. But I, I guess with both, there's a sense of accomplishment. What do you miss the most about uh, flying C-130s and C-5s? The people. I miss the camaraderie. I miss my squadron mates. Um, there's, you know, there's a bond there that uh, – doesn't exist in airline flying. I mean, I fly with some wonderful people with the airline, but you're not really going into harm's way with them. Uh, you're not living in a tent with them. Uh, for the most part, it's not, it's not like your life depends on them, but uh, it's, of course it is like that when you deploy with a military unit, there's just, there's just no other experience like it. There's no bond like it. And um that's what I miss is the people and the camaraderie. But fortunately, as I mentioned, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. We get together for, for lunch and we have reunions. So, you know, it's not like it, it's not like it was with my grandfather where he, he uh, got deployed to England with the eighth air force. And then when it, when it was over and he got back home, he didn't see any of those people again for decades until a, uh, a memorial association was formed. And uh, I think in the 1970s, he started going to reunions with, uh, uh, with some of his old squadron mates. What's the, uh, the, the one skill that you've either learned in the air force through piloting, through engineering that you say would think or say helps you the most in being able to write a novel? Hmm. That's a good question. I'll be honest. I haven't thought about that one before. What transfers from the military that helps me best as a writer? Probably. Um, okay. This is going to sound like a cliche, but it's probably following instructions uh, and, you know, doing what the plan calls for. Uh, of course, we all know how important that is in the military, but it's important in publishing too. When, when a publisher gives you a deadline, they mean it. And it's, and it's a problem if you, uh, if you don't make the deadline. And, you know, fortunately I was always able to make my deadlines and, uh, and, and the publishers appreciate that too. And they, and they have come to know that's what they can expect from military personnel. I remember one time I was supposed to call my editor uh, in New York for a conference call and uh, I don't remember exactly what time of the day it was, but say it was 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, uh, you know what they say in the military, if, if you're not early, you're late. Mm-hmm. So I dialed up uh, so that the phone rang just a few seconds before the top of the hour. And they put me on speakerphone and everybody's laughing. And I said, what are you guys laughing at? 
And my editor said, I told them because you were military, that phone was going to ring at 10 seconds before the top of the hour. And it did. <laughs> uh, there's something to be said for predictability and consistency, right? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, Sand and Fire uh, received the star bo- uh, review from the book list. Like, you know, when one of your books gets a sort of national accreditation like that, is there any comparison to getting a medal for a, a flight operation or anything you did in the military? Are they similar feelings? Um, it's always gratifying to get a good review. And uh, I am quite grateful to, to the reviewers and, and the readers who have spoken kindly about my work. But in the in the bigger scheme of things, a uh, a novel, a uh, a review, uh, a writer's ego is not nearly as important as a military job done well. Uh, if you get a medal uh, of some kind, uh, or even if you don't get a medal, but you 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 do your job well and you know what you did, and your buddies know what you did that that's that's a higher level that's that's that, i'm i'm not being very articulate right now but I, i'll just say that uh that's more important than uh than than getting a good review that's more important than seeing your name on a bookshelf i mean I, i'm sure it's you know there's a there's a collaborative effort in writing a, a book or a novel right like even though you write it you still have editors publishers people who all chip in um, but it, it, I think it's like you said, at least what I'm hearing, you know, in a military operation, you know, there are so many other people that are counting on you and you're counting on them in theory, they, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are multiple ways to go publish a book or you can edit it yourself and things of like that and still get it published, even if it doesn't, you know, sell or anything else like that. But I, I just think it's that whole sort of teamwork effort in a military operation that sort of distinguishes it. Uh, yes, there's, uh, there, there's teamwork in, in publishing, there's teamwork in a lot of things, but, um, uh, of course it gets kicked up to the 10th power to the hundredth power in the military. But, um, that was also in the back of my mind, you know, when I talked about, uh, using the, the, the military ethic to meet deadlines and, you know, do what I was supposed to do, uh, as a writer, because it occurred to me that, you know, this, as you say, this is a collaborative effort. Uh, I'm the writer. My name's on the book. But the but the publisher has uh, editors. Uh, they have interns. They have publicists. They have uh, technical people. And their livelihoods depend on uh, being able to put the book out when they're supposed to. So, uh, you know, although it certainly wasn't a life and death situation, you know, there are people dependent on you there, too. So I was I was aware of that. Any chance you'll go back to nonfiction at any point? It's entirely possible. Uh, I've, I've worked in the fiction realm for uh, quite a while now, and the ideas I'm developing now are for more novels. But I wouldn't rule out uh, doing a, a nonfiction book. Well, the latest book, again, uh, Red Burning Sky, a World War II novel inspired by the greatest aviation rescue in history. Uh, certainly, uh, you guys can pick it up anywhere books are sold. It comes out at the end of February, right? The exact date again? It's actually, it's out. It's out as of uh, February 22nd, and okay. uh, it's available in uh, hardcover, audio, and ebook through all of the uh, usual uh, booksellers, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, of course, you can you can go into your favorite independent bookstore and uh, and get it there. If it's not on the shelf, they can always order it for you. So it's available pretty much anywhere you want to buy a book, and pretty much in in any format, uh, ebook, audio, or hardcover. Well, Tom, again, I mean, five thousand hours uh, as a flight engineer in the C five C one thirty, highly decorated. Uh, Air Force combat, uh, you know, a veteran, and, and certainly a long, distinguished twenty year career uh, in the Air Force. Along with that, just uh, you know, over uh, half dozen novels at this point, fiction, nonfiction. It's just an incredible sort of resume that you've managed to put together uh, over the course of your life. And we wish you continued success, Red Burning Sky. I hope it just takes off and blows up. Sounds like an incredible story. Uh, and if you're a fan of World War II history like I am, you'll certainly want to want to dive into this one. Um, but again, we wish you nothing but continued success and the best of luck going forward. 
Well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. And it's been uh, an honor to get to chat with you and your listeners. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Tom Young, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.